Hi, welcome back from our holiday break, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners. It's Andrew Rimby, the Executive Director of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, and I am so thrilled to introduce Season 6, Episode 1, to all of you. We are joined by Robert Jones Jr., and when I say we, I really mean we, Mary DePippi, our Chief Contributor, and Jaren Usta, our Marketing Director. Jaren makes a surprise appearance. Um, now it's not a surprise, but... Um, she joined us for the recording, so it was really wonderful to have her. And in our conclusion, you'll actually hear um, more about how the whole team got involved with this interview. But for now, the whole team, we sat in on the recording and participated with our discussion with Robert Jones Jr., who was extremely gracious with his time. So thank you, Robert. Um Robert Jones Jr. is the New York Times bestselling author of his debut novel, What We're Here to Talk About, The Prophets. It was a finalist for the 2021 National Book Award for Fiction, and he's written for publications such as The New York Times, Essence, and The Paris Review. And he is the creator and curator of the social justice, social media community, Son of Baldwin, and it has over almost 300,000 thousand followers now. Um, what I'm reading from on his bio, it says 290,000, but we're going to give it to you. 300,000 almost, Robert Jones Jr. Um, okay, so in this episode, Robert provides a behind-the-scenes discussion about how did he come to create such a prolific Black queer love story? Who's his literary inspiration? Um, we discuss a lot about the 19th century slave narratives of Harriet Jacobs, Frederick Douglass. We get into the 20th century with um, his literary uh, prophet, James Baldwin. We also talk about Toni Morrison. Um, he explains the musicality of his prose. The music of his writing is so important. Um, he actually even mentions a band from the 80s that you might not expect, Um and when I say band, actually, I should say artist. Um, and as Robert says, his novel really needed to sing. That's his quote from the interview. So there's so much to ponder and reflect on in this episode. I really hope that all of you listening share this. It's such an important interview. Use it for your teaching. We encourage you to share our episodes for teaching any episode. Um, share it to your communities. If you have a book club, you know, have your book club community listen. We really appreciate that type of support. And on the front cover, I'm going to read Marlon James, the writer. He has such an excellent quote on the front cover of The Prophets. It says that Robert Jones, well, referring to Robert Jones Jr.'s Black Queer Love Story, that it is, quote, glorious. What the American novel is, should do, and can be. End quote. And on that note, I welcome you all back to our first episode of season six. And I hope that you all enjoy our interview with Robert Jones Jr. Here's a little teaser uh, to get you interested and also for what you can anticipate. With the prophets, I'm asking all readers, whether they are black or not, queer or not, to also make that leap to understand and empathize without having me create some character that you feel more comfortable with a white savior or a, or a, a heterosexual savior or what have you to, to make your way into the book. I'm, I'm demanding that the reader um, confront the fact that don't you have any empathy? Can't you empathize with somebody who's not like you? And if you cannot, ask yourself why. Hmm. And begin to do the work to understand why.
Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room's first 2022 episode. Um, all of us who are here on the Zoom right now, we're going to have to pretend it's 2022, uh, which I think won't be hard after 2021. Uh, so I'm actually joined with the full house. I'm here with Mary DePippi, my guest co-host. Hi, Mary. Hello. And I'm here for the first time joined by Jaren Usta, our marketing director. Hi, Jaren. Hi, hello everyone. I get to be the audience today. Yes, so she is our audience. So thank you, Jaren. Jaren is now going to watch uh, yes. from the back of the house, uh, so to speak. And of course, we are joined here by a prolific writer, Robert Jones Jr., who I just know is going to be such a treat. So thank you so much, Robert, for joining us. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Mary. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, well, let's, I'm going to get right into it, which is reading your bio on the back of the prophets. First, everyone, you need to physically have the prophets in front of you to see all of the glorious praise Robert is getting. Uh, hopefully, I don't have you blush too much, Robert, but there's so much praise on the back, including, including one of my favorite poets, Ocean Viang. Um, yeah, <laughs> incredible. And when I read your bio, this is your debut novel. Is that correct? That is correct. Wow. I mean, yeah, reading through your novel, which I will be upfront, of course, with the listeners, because a lot of listeners are discovering you for the first time and I'm making sure we direct them all to the bookstore, um, that I'm in the midst of your novel and Mary's gotten further than I have, but I do have to talk about the audiobook because that's been really exciting. Um, so yeah, how was this process of creating a debut novel? Terrifying. I um, started writing The Prophets in 2006 when I um, realized that there was an absence of the Black queer figure in literature prior to the Harlem Renaissance. Um, the first encounter I have with a Black queer figure is in Wallace Thurman's The Black of the Berry, which he wrote in 1929. But I was curious, why aren't there any black queer people before the Harlem Renaissance? We didn't just, you know, come down in a ball of glitter <laughs> during that time. We had to exist before, and I searched the canon and couldn't find anything. Um, and then, because I couldn't find anything, Toni Morrison's voice: "If you cannot find the book you wish to read, then you must write it." And I said, gosh darn it, I'm gonna have to write this book and I'm terrified to do it because there's no template. Um, but I was lucky to have found on this journey um, in the African oral traditions, um, stories of how um, queerness, transgenderness were part of the normal natural landscape of pre-colonial African societies. And so with that in mind, I was able to um, forge ahead and write the book that I was terrified to write. Wow, wow. Well, and I assigned my students, which again, not giving my excuses for not <laughs> finishing the whole novel, but I've been finalizing grades. But like I told Mary, I'm gonna have such a treat next week to just post all about the prophets. Um, and it really has resonated so much of what you're talking about, Robert, because of, especially I always think of Toni Morrison's Playing in the Dark essay and how she turns the white American canon on its head to look at the phenomenon of whiteness. And, you know, I feel like Marlon James, the writer, right? When he calls your novel what the American novel is, should do and can be. It, I really think that's such a great subversive way of reading this white American canon that, like you're saying, um, is being subverted by especially inserting 
a queer black experience. So for that, I just want to say thank you so much for bringing this novel into the ether. Yeah. Seeing any value in it whatsoever. As a writer, you never know. You, you put your heart out there and you anticipate people are going to stomp on it because that's the world we live in. So it's really um, miraculous. And I have a, a tremendous sense of gratitude when people um, find value in it. So thank you very much. I'm just curious. I am for, uh, um, as Andrew said, I'm further along in the books. So I had come across the different oral traditions. I think you're mentioning. Can you expand on that a little bit? Because I, as I was reading it, I was just so fascinated at just the beauty of it and how accepting it was. And just, and in comparison to the quote, you know, Christianity. <laughs> and I say it like that because it, the way that they are make, trying to come across Christianity is not at all what at the root it's supposed to be. If anything, you know, when um, it's discussed when um, Brother Gabriel, the Portuguese, come and invade in um, Africa, um, you know, just that moment where it's like he's supposed to be like this holy person but yet I can't find anything holy about him but yet everything that they are doing and everything they are is just so beautiful and spiritual that like I said I would just love for you to expand on that because I was so fascinated I uh, was doing the research for the prophets as I said previously I was scouring the scouring the canon to try to find any examples of blackness and queerness prior to the Harlem Renaissance. So I did encounter some examples. Um, one example was in a slave narrative called um, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs. She describes um, a male enslaved person who is chained to the bed of his master and his master rapes him um, uh, regularly. Um, and then there is some hints toward a homosexual experience in um, Frederick Douglass's slave narrative. And then also in Toni Morrison's Beloved, one of her characters, Paul D, is sexually assaulted by a male overseer. So I, I read those and I said, okay, that likely happened, but what about love? Um, and so, I couldn't find examples of black homosexual love in any period prior to the Harlem Renaissance. So I had to go to the oral traditions of African societies. And in particular, um, a African scholar from Ghana by the name of Esther Arma, she's brilliant. And she talks about how her people, the Ga people of Ghana, if you had asked them her, her great-grandparents, what is a homosexual? They would have said, I don't know, we don't have that here. And as a Westerner, you would have walked away from that conversation thinking, oh, there were no homosexuals in Ghana. Mm. She said, had you explained to her great-grandparents what you meant by homosexual, they would have said, oh, you mean love. Because for them, there was no reason to single out homosexuality. It was just part of life. Um, it was nothing different from heterosexuality. The same thing with transgenderness. It was just a part of the human experience. And so as I began to further investigate that idea, I found several African tribal traditions had that same belief that this was just life. And in some traditions, king was just a title. So whoever held that title was king. Women, men, non-binary people, whoever held it, it was king. Um, and also um, in some traditions, like with the Dagara people of what is now known as Burkina Faso, um, if you were born queer, you held a special place in their, in their village. You were considered to be the guardian of the gates between the here and the hereafter. You had a special purpose. Um, and what I find around the world, not just in Africa, um, is that um, indigenous populations have 
a place for queer and transgender people that is not shameful, that is not sinful, that is not unrighteous, that is in fact hallowed and celebrated. Um, and, and it is not until they encounter Europeans with colonization and Christianity through missionary work that they begin to in, internalize this idea that homosexuality and transgenderness is wrong and sinful and ungodly and all of these things. And once I discovered that golden thread, I had the courage to write the prophets to specifically, as um, Mary pointed out, write about an African village in which these ideas are brought to the forefront. Yeah. And, and again, just so beautifully written the way you describe those scenes. I, they're some of my favorites in the book so far, honestly. My favorites too, to be honest. I love those sections of the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm so happy you brought up, Robert, one of my favorite 19th century writers, uh, Harriet Jacobs. Um, because yeah, that, well, the queer abuse, right? I mean, it's a, such a violent episode. And like you're saying, you just encountered all of these white colonizer violent encounters when there was a queer act, which, you know, doesn't settle at all well with um, seeing that type of love dynamic that you bring to the forefront between Samuel and Isaiah. And I'm kind of curious, this kind of piggybacks what Mary was saying about your approach with Christianity, but I remember with Harriet Jacobs, she uses Christianity a lot as a way to speak to white middle-class women to um, evoke a sympathy from them about, no, this is why slavery is unjust. And like, do that feel like a burden for you to come up to that with Christianity? Because that's a really um, large history of trying to speak to a white audience by using Christian motifs. Well, you know, um, for people like Harriet Jacobs and Frederick Douglass and others who wrote slave narratives, you'll notice that at the very beginning of the book, a white person has to say, I, as a white person, testify to the veracity of this story. Um, and to this very day, there is this sense that a black person's testimony cannot be believed unless there is a white person to co-sign it. Um, but with the prophets, I wanted to sort of turn that on its head. Mm -hmm. So Christianity is not the saving grace in, in, in the prophets. It is the thing that is being critiqued. Um, there are no white saviors or co-signers in the prophets. I actually turn that on its head to undermine both of those things because what I want with the prophets is I think about um, myself as a child growing up in the United States, where I am in schools where I'm reading books about white people and white culture and white um, understandings of the world. And I am expected as a black person, as a black queer person, to empathize and understand the white cisgender heterosexual point of view. Um, there's no need for translation, I am expected to know. So with the prophets, I'm asking all readers, whether they are black or not, queer or not, to also make that leap to understand and empathize without having me create some character that you feel more comfortable with a white savior or a, or a, a heterosexual savior or what have you to make your way into the book. I'm, I'm demanding that the reader um, confront the fact that, don't you have any empathy? Mm. Can't you empathize with somebody who's not like you? And if you cannot, ask yourself why, mm. and begin to do the work to understand why. Wow, so beautifully stated. And I know that, and maybe it's this wave image on the cover, as you see, um, on the North American edition, but, and I think, is your UK edition the same cover or is it a little different, Robert? It is different. It is different. Okay. So, no, it's the same. oh, it's the same. It's the same. Oh, okay. That's very unique. 
Um, right, Mary? Usually we find that they're very different uh, interpretations. Um, Spain is, is really, really different. The Spain cover is, is actually extraordinarily beautiful, but it's very different from um, the rest of the covers. Oh, what does the uh, Spain edition look like? Oh, he's going to show oh. us. Oh, exciting. It is one of the most extraordinary things. Here you go. And for our visual um, viewers, because we hope to release this as a special video, this is what the profits looks like from uh, the US. This is the Spanish cover. Ooh. Oh, okay. Um, and it's, that is wow. stunning. it's quite literal um, yeah. in, in a sense, but it's also very, very beautiful um, the way in which Samuel and Isaiah are leaned into each other, like relying on one another, holding each other up at the same time. It's just extraordinarily beautiful. Yeah, mm -hmm. it kind of evokes what I think is a companion visual, which is Moonlight oh, by yes. Barry Jenkins, mm -hmm. right? And, Barry Jenkins. Yeah, and I find that, right, different time periods, right? Moonlight is contemporary Miami, but um, again, is this very pure, you know, queer black love story that, you know, again, doesn't mean there are not obstacles because there are obstacles already in the prophets that we're encountering. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Samuel and Isaiah are enslaved, um, but it is such a different take on a text that I feel I thought a lot about, but again, I'm a white cisgender gay man. So a text that resonated a lot with me, with my own coming out was call me by your name, but call me by your name is such a different, right? There's an age difference. There's yeah. We should really talk about that at some point as a gay community. Yeah. Um, the ways in which younger gay men, I don't want to say are preyed upon, but that's the, mm. the word that comes to my mouth by these older gay men who kind of initiate us into um, our sexual selves. Um, because that's such a common story. Mm. Um, I was 16 or 17 and dating someone who was like 36 and didn't realize the ways in which I was, um, I couldn't consent mm -hmm. to that arrangement. Um, I, in my head, it was like, ooh, this older guy likes me. Hmm. Um, but it, I now know with my 2021 eyes, how problematic that was. Yeah, that was actually my first sexual encounter when I was in high school, I was 17 and he was 32. Mm. Yeah, it's a very common, you're right. And problematic mm. and also, no, I'm glad you're talking about it, Robert, because that's something in Call Me By Your Name where is it empowering to have that preying upon relationship or why is that idealized, right? And and if that movie, one of the things that disturbed me about that movie was the ways in which that young man was broken by that older man. Mm -hmm. um, and I was similarly broken because I, I was so fragile and innocent at the time, you know, and that wasn't taken into account by the older person um, because they, I guess, have, you know, they're older, they're more experienced. I was so green. And I guess they liked that sense of power mm. over somebody who had, I had not the slightest clue about any of this stuff. So when he's heartbroken at the end of that, and oddly his parents being like sort of okay with that situation, which was bizarre, but um, I felt that brokenness. I, I understood what that felt like being shattered in that way. Yeah, and it's so at odds with the text that here at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, we've all absorbed, which is James Baldwin's Another Country. And I mean, we can't go, I knew we weren't going to go through this interview without talking about Baldwin. Yeah, 
pictured right behind you. Um, yeah, and oh, more James Baldwin. Um, and if you don't know Robert Jones Jr., when he's not, you know, writing a prolific debut novel, is also in charge of his activist group, Son of Baldwin, um, which I urge you all to follow um, on social media. But, well, so let's go there with Baldwin because he is so different than Andre Osman, who wrote Call Me By Your Name. Like, when did you encounter Baldwin? How does he reverberate with you? I mean, there's so much. I, I came to Baldwin rather late. I am also a very late college student. I didn't go back to college and take it seriously and understand why I was there until I was in my early 30s. So I'm back as a freshman in, um, at the age of 31 and I'm taking a sociology class, um, a, a political science course where um, he, we're assigned readings. And one of the readings we're assigned is an essay called Here Be Dragons by James Baldwin. So I had heard the name James Baldwin, but I knew nothing about him. I didn't even know he was black. I didn't know he was queer. I knew nothing about James Baldwin. So I'm reading this essay and I'm astounded by the level of brilliance. And so, of course, I'm like, who is this man? How do I get to know him? Um, where, what else has he written? I was devastated to learn that he was dead. Um, but I was also revived by the fact that he was black, queer, a writer, and lived in New York City. All of the things I was or wanted to be. And so I devoured all of his work and in 2007, came across a documentary by him, I think it's called The Price of the Ticket on PBS. Mm. It was Black History Month and they were showing um, all of this stuff related to Black history. And this documentary about James Baldwin was one of them. And I was just astounded and wowed by it and broken by it. Because toward the end, James Baldwin's brother says, um, on his deathbed, one of the last things Baldwin said was, I hope someone finds me in the wreckage. Hmm. Because he was afraid that he would be forgotten and that his work would be ignored. Mm -hmm. um, and I took that as a charge. I want to create a space in which we can talk about Baldwin's work and continue it, continue the, the line of work that he was doing. And so that was how Son of Baldwin was born in 2008. Um, first on Blogspot. I don't know if you guys remember Blogspot. <laughs> it was on Blogspot before it um, went to Facebook, before even Facebook became like this big space that everyone participated in. And I was still a college student, so I had access to Facebook because remember, it was only for college kids. Mm -hmm. So um, I put it on Facebook and then it, it grew by word of mouth from there. Yeah. And I think you're at how many followers on Instagram? Um, I, you know, I don't know precise numbers. I know that combined Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, it's over 290,000 followers. That's incredible. But also so important, like you're saying, well, I mean, we don't, we're not going to go into the Whitman, <laughs> like, um, direction too much, but it is interesting because working on Whitman in relationship to his racism and like, I've talked a lot about using Baldwin and Hughes and Toni Morrison and well, Bell Hooks, who sadly rest in power just passed mm -hmm. away. Um, such an important pedagogical figure um, and writer and intellectual, all of those things. But where Whitman, there's almost, I'll say it, an arrogance of, look for me under your boot soles. Like I'm here. Like Whitman is not afraid of falling away from history where you're right. Baldwin, like you said, the term wreckage, like how am I going to be found? That's such a different type of queer aesthetic. And in, in his yeah. day, people forget this in Baldwin's day, he was despised. Mm -hmm. um, he was hated by his contemporaries, his peers, um, Ralph Ellison, Richard Wright, others. 
Hmm. He was despised by um, the conservatives and other people who up upheld whiteness um, because of both his blackness and his queerness, he was despised. He, Baldwin was a finalist for the National Book Award four times and never won. And yet today he's the go-to person for us to understand what is going on in this world. Mm -hmm. People quote him all the time, return to his work all the time. The Fire Next Time is probably the most returned to work of the 20th century and it did not win any major prizes. So he was right to fear being forgotten. Um, but luckily, thankfully, he left for us a wealth of knowledge and wisdom and understanding so that we can, in some ways, make sense of the world we live in, if not transform it. Because Baldwin is called bitter in his later years because what he realized in his final work, Evidence of Things Not Seen, hmm. is that he was wasting his time talking to white people because they were never going to change. And so, that is something that I wrestle with, is that, is it worth talking to white people? Because it seems as though, as a collective, um, and I don't mean just people with white skin, I mean people who subscribe to the ideas of white supremacy, mm. of capitalism, of patriarchy. Mm. Is it worth arguing with them? Or should we just find, divest ourselves go someplace else and find another better way to live. And that is kind of what Baldwin's, Baldwin's last words were like, I fear that they will never learn and that they will destroy all of us in their um, unknowing. Wow. Yeah, well, and that's another country, right? I mean, mm -hmm. is the heart of, the wrestling and, you know, if I can too, um, Baldwin talks so much about that anxiety, that almost a paralysis that he's under when he's in America trying to write and just can't because of white supremacy and that um, uh, weight, right? Uh, oppressive weight. And why going to Paris, even though, of course, there are obstacles to encounter. It doesn't have that same weight for Baldwin. I mean, do you, and I will forewarn you, Robert, this is going to be a big question, but I know I can go there. Do you feel that that weight is still as oppressive or as um, present as Baldwin was talking about? Okay, hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Baldwin, a lot of people don't know this, Baldwin attempted suicide several times because of the weight. I think at least five times attempted suicide wow. um, and came very close one of those, at least one of those times. Um, that weight remains. Um, I write through it. Um, because I have no choice. Um, and I wonder what it would be like to write without that weight. Hmm. Um, I, I don't know, and I don't, I don't think I will ever know because I don't think white supremacy, capitalism and patriarchy is going anywhere, anywhere soon, anytime soon. Um, but 
I, I think about Toni Morrison with that weight on my shoulders because she says the job of, of racism is distraction. It's to keep you from doing your work. Hmm. So whatever oppression, whatever pain, whatever violence, use it. So I try very hard to use it um, so that I can convert it into my art and, and, then, and then write. Um, so yes, I, I very much do feel that weight, but I try my best as a human being, as an artist, to not let it stop me, but in fact, to allow it to fuel me to continue the work. Yeah, and I will go to Mary soon, but if I can, <laughs> even opening up the profits gives me that same extreme pleasure of, I was telling my students, cause I did teach another country, this semester and it was i think worked so well at just well unfortunately like you're saying that um how timely baldwin is right now in especially america um with white supremacy and this you know how do you speak to those who um believe in that system and you know and i think another country it's just so full of knowledge that baldwin imparts but also authenticity and truth about integrated relationships and interracial relationships which you don't see a lot queer relationships that you also all these intersections um and I'll just say, when you open the prophets, the musicality, the way that you, your chapters speaking to Christianity or, right, I mean, it's called the prophets, but there's a section called Psalms and, you know, even having Samuel and Isaiah, of course, biblical references. It's just, it's so beautiful, Robert, and is a text I know we're going to keep returning to, like, you can just feel it in the air. So, I mean, I just think as a white person, it's important to bring these texts to the forefront. Like, and yes, there is this huge system to dismantle of white supremacy, but if nothing else, I will say this as a white person, it's our job as white people to bring these authors to the forefront who are queer and black and, you know, who are indigenous, like this is key. Like, you know, it shouldn't be on the marginalized community to carry the conversation at all. But, oh, okay. <laughs> well, Mary. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, yeah. there's so many societal issues going on in this world and I feel like you also capture them so beautifully and present them so beautifully in this book I mean it's not just about you know slaves versus you know their slave owners or their masters or things like that it's also about the power dynamics of between men and women between straight and gay and it's all there and it's just so beautifully presented I mean was that all intentional to have all of these different types of oppressive systems in place in this novel? Or was this just something organic that started to come as you were writing it? It was sort of built in and baked in to the fact that I was writing about um, a black queer couple in antebellum slavery. Um, I don't think that art and politics politics can be separated. I think particularly as a black queer person writing, I this country had no intention for me to know how to read or write. Mm -hmm. um, if not for the sacrifices and survivals of my ancestors, I couldn't be here to do this. So I'm already a politicized figure mm -hmm. um, doing art. Um, and so there was no way to write about this time period without um, excavating all of those political dynamics, um, men and women, women, I'm writing at a time when women were not allowed to vote. So how could I 
they were not even considered really fully people. Um, you know, the Constitution meant men. They, they really meant that. Um, not just men as mankind or humankind, but men as males only. Um, and I'm writing about um, slavery, um, which is um, one of the most degrading um, systems imaginable. And so it was by the nature of that, that I had to bring to the forefront these um, complicated and um, oppressive systems and name them. And what was kind of enlightening for me was that I was writing about the 1820s, 1830s, mm -hmm. but it felt like I was writing about the 21st century because so many of those problems persist. Um, they have different names. Um, we no longer have cotton plantations, but now we have the prison industrial complex, which does the exact same thing. We no longer have um, overseers, but we now have police officers who do the exact same job. It is, um, we no longer, women are now considered people, but we still, we now have a US Supreme Court that is threatening to take away women's rights mm. and the rights of non-binary people and trans men and others who have wombs and who can procreate and have and carry children. It's almost like we're trapped in this weird cycle of um, look at us, we're America, we're the most progressive land in the world. And with the other side of our mouths, we're going to oppress and take away rights. Mm. Um, and we're, we're doing all of this by not confronting ourselves as a society, as in fact, trying to um, make the myth the truth and hide the real truth do away with um, critical race theory when you don't even know what it is. Um, and so it's just this really bizarre, I, I just don't understand this country or maybe I do understand this country because one of the ways that it can remain um, the United States of America um, is by pretending that it's innocent, mm. which Baldwin said was the greatest crime of all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it's so important that you bring all that to light, Robert, in both the prophets and also like I could see that or at first I was thinking, oh, is this a revisionist queer antebellum novel? But I really think that, no, this love between two enslaved black men existed. And, you know, there's always that oft quoted saying, like to understand the present, you have to understand the past. Well, I actually think your novel teaches us to understand our present. We have to understand the past, but the past also informs your present every day. Like that, you know, you, we can't just rely on, especially white antebellum American voices of writers to teach us about people who were enslaved. Like, you know, that power dynamic is, like Mary even said, there's such a binary power dynamic. Like, of course, you know, the colonizers are not going to try to represent and fully humanize the colonized. And I mean, you taught me that. I mean, I think it's just so powerful. And um, yeah, but like Mary saying, I like to follow up with Mary about gender. It is such an important perspective in your novel that like you're saying, um, and I might forget the author's name, but there's a text about, I think it's sexualizing the black body or um, there was an academic critic who wrote about how especially enslaved women are by white authors always sexualized in the 19th century and into the 20th. Like it becomes this fetishized. I would even say 12 Years a Slave, the film does that. Um, you know, so how 
aware were you of even that history of the sexualization of enslaved people for the white audience's enjoyment? Very aware. Um, and with the prophets, I was hoping to get to the root of some of that, like um, spoilers for anyone who hasn't read, like when I write about the fucking place, mm -hmm. what a lot of people don't understand is that that's real. Like they literally had farms where they would it, like rape factories mm -hmm. to um, make sure they were keeping the slave population, you know, robust. Um, this was really a dehumanizing, awful, awful, awful institution. Um, and I wanted to make that clear in the ways in which um, Black people were, um, I don't even want to call it sexualized because I don't want to con conflate sex and rape because they're two different things, mm -hmm. but the ways in which Black people were raped. But I also want to clarify a big misunderstanding about that too. There are some members in Black communities that think that those rapes, those abuses, that trauma, those things are the reasons why Black people are gay or lesbian or transgender or bisexual, that it comes from those, those awful situations. But no, that is not true. Transgenderness, queerness are normal parts of nature. Um, they occur in 500 different species of animals that we've observed. So um, I wanted to make clear that there's a distinction. Yes, there were awfully traumatic um, rape events that happened to us that had awful impacts on us, but that is not what cause, causes someone to be gay or transgender. So I wanted to both um, shed a light on those awful experiences, humanize the people to whom those things were happening, and also make a distinction between um, sex, rape, and where queerness plays a role in that. Yeah. And I know Mary had a question about, um, especially women and, um, right, the idea of childbearing. Do you want to expand upon that, yes. Mary? Well, just because there are very many characters, many female characters that are just incredibly written, so believable. I mean, Maggie's my favorite. <laughs> she is just incredible um, as a character. And definitely, like I said, just she's my favorite. Um, but you have these different female characters, enslaved and not, because Ruth, the um, you know, miss the master's wife. They all have different ideas of childbearing and what childbearing means and how they view it. Um, so what was, what was that process like to try and create all of these different viewpoints? It was vitally important to me to ensure that the women characters were not stock characters, that they were fully rounded, dimensional human beings who were different, not under the banner of woman, like we often see when when male male writers are writing about women, is this mm -hmm. this this one oh woman, you know, yes. um, and so I I hate that, and I wanted to make sure that each of these women were different, because women are different, like all women are like women are not all the same. We have this idea that um, there's a virtuous woman and that all women should be that thing. I like outlaw women. I like women who break the rules. I like women who are vulnerable, who are strong, who are kind, who are mean, because that's what it means to be a human being. Um, and Maggie in particular is an homage to my great aunts and my great grandmother, women who um, endured um, untold injustices, who walked around with razor blades in their mouths because they had to be prepared for whatever was going to happen to them because of 
the vulnerability of being a woman in a patriarchal society. Um, and I wanted to ensure that I had at least one woman character that passed the Bechtel test, who did not want to talk about men, who didn't give a shit about men, who was just concerned with sisterhood. Um, so I have King Akusa, who's like, fuck guys, you know, I, you know, I'm I'm a woman in charge, and I need to make sure my kingdom is good. And I have Sarah, who is like, I care about my sisters. Y'all are trying to make me think about these men. I need to think about my sisters and myself. Um, because that is the fullness and richness of life. And I also wanted to disassociate this idea of um, motherhood equals woman, because that's not the case. Not all women wanna be mothers. Not all women can be mothers. Not all women are, are concerned with motherhood. Um, and the fact that we're always associating women with motherhood, it's, it's almost a way for men, for, for, patri for people who think in patriarchal ways, to give women a value. You're valuable because you can do this thing, not because you exist, but because you can create more soldiers and laborers for the, the society. I wanted to do away with that, that um, um, the equating that the way in the ways in which women are equated in that way. So we have Maggie that's like, don't have kids. <laughs> um, we have Sarah who's not interested. Um, and so it is, some, and then we also have Essie who wants to have a child, but not in the way in which she's being forced to do so. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different ways in which um, we could look at this thing we call womanhood. And I wanted to make sure that that was captured. Absolutely. I mean, truly, I mean, as a woman reading these characters, I was like, oh my gosh, someone gets it. Like, <laughs> Because like you said, I mean, there are so many male authors out there that write women as like a stereotype and there's no real depth or dimension to them. They're just kind of this one sided figure. And that's really it. They serve a purpose in the novel and that's it. They move on. But these women are really important. There's one woman character in the book that a lot of people don't like. They see her as villainous. Um, be auntie. But. For me, Beyonce was the woman. She's what happens when patriarchy succeeds in breaking you. So I have sympathy for that um, because you can't always be strong. Sometimes you, you lose. Sometimes the oppressor wins. And this is what happens when you're shattered. So I, I have sympathy for that character because of that, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad you also brought up the Bechdel test because it kind of supports my theory about why the Real Housewives are so popular, which is it's one of the only times you actually see women all on a screen together, not only just talking about men, but whatever struggle they're working through. And I just think there needs to be more of those visuals. Um, but like not, Mary's, yeah. And not with them always at each other's throats. That's the yeah. one thing I think about that franchise is that it, it almost gets joy out of pitting women against one another. Mm -hmm. um, and I hate that about it. And I hate that it's called housewives because that implies a man is somehow the, de the definition of who mm -hmm. these women are. Yeah. That, and none of that, them are actually housewives or that, like the they're thing. entrepreneurs. They're right. um, yeah. So why are we calling them housewives? Yeah. Like why not the real women of whatever? Yeah, I know. Mm -hmm. I know. I mean, I have my own thoughts about Andy Cohen, but we don't have to go there. Um. <laughs> don't, get me started. don't get me started on Andy Cohen. I know. I mean, I don't know if you heard, but I had the behind the scenes about the housewives with um, Brian Moylan. And well, there's a lot of theories about why the women are pitted against each other and the storylines. But yeah, you're right. It's it's what I get. more. You see it all in Andy's face when they have like the um, the reunion specials. And when the women are arguing, he has like this knowing smile, like almost like cha-ching. Mm -hmm. Every time they argue, I make more money. I can start a new franchise. 
and it's yeah. just disgusting. It's misogyny on full display. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's why um, I feel when he's far away, especially like the girls' trip was actually enjoyable because they're playing games and they're like, oh, wait, they can hang out on the beach and talk about their everyday lives. And, oh, it's enjoyable. Like they don't have to be throwing wine at each other. But yeah, I know. Well, but I think it is. It's an important point because it's such a cultural phenomenon. And like you're saying, a lot of viewers, they take what they're being in arts, especially whether it's through literature, but I would say especially the majority of people are probably consuming media through TV and film. They accept those narratives as fact a lot of the time. Like they're not questioning how is it being produced? Like what is being cut, you know? And And that's where I say, thank the universe for Bell Hooks Mm -hmm. who wrote this really incredible book called Real to Real. which broke down the ways in which TV and film shape our public consciousness about other people, marginalized people in particular, um, and ways in which we could subvert that um, so that we're not impacted or so that we don't perpetuate those awful um, stereotypes about one another. Um, She's such a profound loss. I, I, I almost can't express what we lost when she passed away yeah wait you mentioning that text i never read real to real so i'm gonna you know get my hands on real to real during this break and super important and read it in tandem with james baldwin the devil finds work oh okay okay thank you see so many suggestions it's but it's why we love doing these interviews because I'm learning so much from you as a writer and, you know, going now into another writerly question is, I know that you've been writing a while, like this is your debut novel, but I think you've written poetry. Now, <laughs> really awful poetry, but go on. No, but no, I think it's an important, you know, even if you think that, it's important because I can just hear the musicality in the prophets. It's not every day. I have to say, there are not many texts where you literally can just hear. It's not even rhyming, but it feels just musical the way, especially when I'm hearing the actress Karen Chilton, which incredible for your audiobook. Um, but it's just, it evokes the musicality, and if I can, there's just one line about rebellion and resistance where this is on page eight. Um, I'll say you write, but right. The narrator uh, says, tiny resistances were a kind of healing in a weeping place. And there's so much weight to that figurative language. but healing in a weeping place, right? That power of oppression, right? Like I can feel the power of oppression, but that there is the sunshine on the other end of this darkness. I don't know, like how um, much did you think about that musicality or like the sounds that you were evoking? Musicality was absolutely essential. Like I, I made conscious efforts to, to say lines out loud because they had to hit certain beats. Hmm. And um, it had to, I had to attain a certain rhythm. If the rhythm was off, I would rewrite the line um, because I, I, I needed it to hit the ear in a particular way. Um, also, Um, while I was writing The Prophets, I listened to a lot of music, in particular, um, 70 soul music. So I was listening to a lot of Aretha Franklin, Mm. Stevie Wonder, um, Gladys Knight and the Pips, um, Diana Ross, um, a lot of that kind of music. Um, In addition to some um, 
other kinds of music like um in fact i can think of there's a line that almost has the same rhythm as the sweetest taboo by Sade, because i was writing that line as i was listening to that song and she says if i tell you if I tell you now, and there's a, a line in the in the book that has that same rhythm. So the musicality of it is, for me, the most important part of how the book was constructed. I really needed it to sing, in a sense. Yeah. Well, it and- sang, and my <laughs> eyes danced along. Re- I'm serious. I mean, it is such a pleasure to read. Truly. I mean, the content obviously, you know, is very difficult in and of itself, obviously, because of slavery and the power dynamics and the oppression that's just there in this book. But again, that musicality, it, like your eyes just can't help it. They just have to, because you can hear the beats, you can hear the music that's just in the background of this. And it's, mm. it's incredible, truly. Yeah. And I've recommended for the whole team to listen to James Baldwin's Home Records playlist. Have you seen that on Spotify, Robert? Oh. Tell me about this. Yeah, just look up James Baldwin's Home Records and someone's compiled all the records digitally that Baldwin housed when he was writing. So he was listening to Diana Ross. I think specifically her 70s album that featured, um, what was that theme? Mahogany, right? Uh, the theme from Mahogany. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, I was happy because he had Shirley Bassey, who everyone knows I am obsessed with, like <laughs> obsessed, um, who's still alive. Um, but, still alive. oh yeah, she's still alive. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, but he was listening to Lena Horne when he was writing and Aretha Franklin and yeah, definitely. It's such a great playlist. Um, but it makes so much sense though, that you were listening to that music and how it pulsates in your novel. Like, um, yeah, that power of musicality is something that I don't, I don't see it in Baldwin and I'm not saying that, you know, it would have affected Baldwin's meaning. Wait, read yeah. Sonny's Blues. Okay, okay. Sonny's Blues, it's okay. it's all in there. Yes. Okay, Jaren is saying read Sonny's Jaren Blues is like, too, yes. with her face. So, okay, I need, well, yeah. And I think another country is just a heavy, is a really heavy psychological text and then, what was the other one, Mary, we were working through? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my. No, no, no. It's, just it's above my of, head. Just above my head. That's just above my head. Yeah. So the one, the text that I was gravitating towards, Robert, were more of Baldwin's, like, psychologically heavy texts where I need to read Sonny's Blues um, because I know Baldwin has that musicality. Um, but, yeah. Well, we, you've been so gracious with your time, Robert. I mean, we've hit so many topics. Um, You can go a little more. Okay. Um, But wait, there is so much more with Robert Jones Jr. We have another 40 minutes of discussion. However, I have to keep these interviews within an hour time frame because we want to make them digestible to all of you listening out there. So we are launching our Patreon account. And thank you, Robert, for being so gracious, for staying longer with the team and for being our first ever Patreon content with your interview and so many questions that you get into. So Head on over to Ivory Tower Boiler Room, our Patreon. You will see a link at the bottom in our show notes, or go to patreon.com, type in Ivory Tower Boiler Room, and you will see our first post is the unedited audio of our interview with Robert Jones Jr. Go over to the 58-minute mark, and you'll hear the rest of the interview. And to unlock Robert Jones Jr.'s unedited audio... And to unlock any unedited audio in the future, 
you can join at any tier level. You won't get ads. You actually will get the interview a day early on Sundays going forward. And our $5 a month membership is the Bookworm membership. So that gives you the unedited audio and also look for a bonus episode every month. Okay, the $10 a month, you are our Scholar member. Our Scholar member gets what the Bookworm members get, but you also get Married to Pippi's True Crime and Academia bonus content, which is really thrilling, literally thrilling. Um, And then our $15 a month, you are our Ivory Tower member. You actually will get exclusive video footage from our interviews. And hint, hint, there's a Robert Jones Jr. video. Um... So later in the week, you will see that there is a video being launched. You have to be an Ivory Tower member to watch the video, but it is so worth it. And maybe as a family, you want to join. I know my parents are thinking of joining at the Ivory Tower level because I showed them the exclusive footage of our Zoom video. And it is so good to see the gestures of Robert Jones Jr., the books he holds up, the team interacting. Um, it gives you a whole different visual with these interviews. Um, and also, you get merchandise every three months if you become an Ivory Tower member. So we welcome you to our Patreon. I hope some of you out there become subscribers. But all of you out there, definitely make sure you follow us on social media, on Instagram, on TikTok, and on Facebook. We have a business page now on Facebook. We are at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Our Twitter is at Ivory Boiler Room. And it has meant so much working with Mary DePippi and Jaren Usta here at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And this is only the beginning. So welcome to season six. Welcome to our winter season. And now I'm going to end with Anne Sophie Anderson and Megan Ames Loverman. Happy 2022, everyone.